Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. We'd like to welcome Tyler Sick, PhD candidate in government at the University of Virginia. We're going to talk about the January 6 hearings and the recent string of Supreme Court decisions, chief among them Dobbs v. Jackson and reversal of Roe v. Wade. Tower, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. So just to start off here, what are your political leanings? How would you defend, identify yourself to the audience? Um, oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I wonder if I don't have a strong answer. I, I, I generally consider myself more of a centrist, um, center right on some issues and center left on other issues. And in, in my mind, in some ways, that isn't a sort of a, the meaning of an old-fashioned Burkean conservative. So in some ways I consider myself conservative, but that's not really how anyone else understands the term conservative anymore. So I don't know if I should or, or, or will use that much, but that's how I would define myself, I suppose, in brief. So start off here, as we're recording this uh, today, there have been six January 6th hearings. There have been nothing short of, but of explosive testimony from Republican state officials, election workers, Trump's inner orbit, Trump administration officials, and several other major minor characters in several plots by Trump to steal the 2020 election in a coup. So first off, I, wanna, I just want to ask, what are your thoughts on the hearing so far? Have you got a chance to watch any of them? Yeah, so I've watched several, several of them, and I've read coverage of all of them. And I mean, I think they're very concerning, I think, because I mean, this is maybe this wasn't a particularly well-organized coup and maybe didn't have a very good chance of succeeding. But I think there's little doubt that there were people attempting to break into the Capitol with the intent of overturning an election, which is by its nature a coup. One of the things that were very interesting is just how credible the evidence is. It's not really the committee that is indicting Trump. It's these people who are testifying who are not um, Democrats, and they're not even never Trump Republicans. I mean, these are people who uh, risk friendships and their careers to go work for the Trump administration, and here they are turning on them. I mean, these are these are Trump's people, um, and I think that gives it a lot more credibility. And th- that's what I think has been one of the most interesting things about the hearings. And um, I mean, in some ways, I don't think that, that anything is shocking. I think this is maybe kind of what we all thought was happening, but it's to know it is is in some ways shocking. I completely agree. You know, these hearings have shown Trump's willingness to completely bypass democratic institutions, enable violence, mob mentality, anti-democratic self-interests and grievances as political tools. You know, just from what I've been able to gather, one, Trump uses his own network of conservative lawyers and private citizens to garage state legislators and election officials to implement fake, fake electors and fudge the vote totals. Two, Trump and administration officials tried to pack the Justice Department with cronies to recount votes and to push through some of these um, schemes. Three, Trump himself knew that the Proud Boys were there in the crowd on January 6th and knew many of these protesters were armed. He knew what Roger Stone and Alex Jones, to some extent, what they were doing with these, you know, violent, these violent militias, these, you know, these violent people meant to, that were wanting to storm the Capitol. And he wanted to lead them at the Capitol building as some sort of, um, you know, grand hero of the Republic, his own twisted way. So 
as someone who's been writing about the early years of the American Republic and his dissertation, the uh, transition to Jacksonian populist democracy, how do you see the future of our democratic institutions and our electoral institutions play out if they're largely ignored with little to no consequences as there've been no very few indictments against top players of this, you know, of, the, of these conspiracies? Right. I mean, I think one of the things is, and I, as you say, I studied Jacksonian democracy and the comparison's often made between Trump and Jackson, but in some ways Trump, you know, I think Trump is obviously much worse in a lot of ways. Jackson uh, was committed to the democratic process. And even uh, when he thought the election was stolen in 1824, he never said that John Quincy Adams wasn't legitimately elected. He always um, agreed that John Quincy Adams was president and never disputed this fact. Um, and so some ways, Trump is, it is unprecedented, which is unusual to say uh, when you study political history, most things are somewhat precedented. Now, as what it says for the future of the democracy, it isn't encouraging, I don't think, I mean, not necessarily because it happened, that it happened is bad, but that so many people don't care that it happened and that so many people thought it should happen and continue to think it should have happened or maybe have succeeded. I think that's really the concerning thing for the future of democracy. And, um, and I don't necessarily know the solution for it. I mean, you have people who really believe that the election was stolen. And how do you convince them otherwise when the evidence so clearly points to the contrary? I mean. I think that's a, it's a difficult fix, but I mean this when you have this many people who who don't uh, buy into the system the way, the way it's worked for all for almost two hundred and fifty years, it is concerning. And the problem is this apparatus, this built-in political party for you know the past forty years, this Reagan you know Republican party is gone, and now it's been transformed into this you know vessel of this mm-hmm. you know this grievance. You know, Jackson came out of nowhere as like this, you know, war hero from the War of 1812. Right. He came out of this, you know, he he built the he built the Democratic Party. He built he built the early beginnings of that party. So, you know, how do you see this like just already there, Republican Party, you mm-hmm. know, fueling this, you know, populist, this very, you know, anti-democratic view? Yeah, I mean, I think um in some ways, so there's always been Reagan began this this distrust of government. And, and I think that there's fair arguments to be made that but by the time Reagan's elected president in the 1980s, government had maybe went too far and beyond what it was capable of actually doing. And there's nothing necessarily that harmful in, in what Reagan said. But the problem is that when you have contempt for government, you inevitably will get contemptible government. And I think that the and so we had this period for a time where we had government corruption and a government that I don't think, um, and this was on both sides, to be fair, a government that I don't think was that in tune with the needs of all of the American people. Certainly large segments of the population have lived very nice lives in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, but these people have been left behind uh, or feel like they've been left behind whether they have or haven't. Um, I mean, that's Trump's base, and he's building them into the party. And a lot of them have left the Democratic Party to join this sort of new Republican Party. Um, and I think it'll be, it's unclear, I think, exactly how strong this coalition is electorally yet, though. I, I think this will, that'll take some time to see. Um, and certainly there have been some cases where moderate Republicans have beaten the Trump candidate, um, such as in Alabama. Um, and that's encouraging, but it, it's not 
as though that's happening across the board. So I think I think it's difficult to say exactly where the party is headed for sure, but certainly this Trump element is strong. It seems to be growing within the party, but whether that makes up a majority of the elected United States electorate or enough to dominate the country, I think is really unclear. And what Democrats do to, to respond to them is also, I think, a tricky situation. Right. I totally, I totally agree, Tyler. I, I want to shift now to the second major issue that's been dominating headlines recently, and that's the Supreme Court. Confidence in the court has taken a large hit in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, the precedent from 1973. Um, but many have argued that public opinion of the court has been in decline for years. Why do you think it's been in decline? Why do you think it's declined even further? I think in some ways the court is the victim of, of what we've seen across the board in American politics in the last 50 or so years, which is um, a declining belief in all our institutions. Congress was the first one to take a hit, and the president, and, and now the courts. Uh, and it's I, I don't, this is difficult to explain. I mean, I think it, it's part of this, but I was just talking about before these people have been left behind. Um, and then so they obviously have contempt for institutions that they feel like have not helped them in their lives. But then I think the second part of it is I think most Americans are somewhere in the middle. And we have a lot of people on the far left and the far right who are dominating Congress and dominating the, the political conversation. And now they seem to be dominating the courts, or at least that's what the voters think. And, I, and so I think it's that, it's this sort of, the court seems out of step with what Americans expect the court to be, which is moderate and impartial. And that's the sort of, some ways, what voters want all their politicians uh, to be, or all political entities to be, I think the majority. Um, so the only people who are very happy with the court are, are, are the, the right. Um, and the right is probably like 20% of the country, just as the left's 20% of the country, and everybody else is somewhere on the spectrum in between. And those people in between feel as though nobody represents them. And they used to feel, I think, like the court represented them, but I don't think they feel that way anymore. Right. Since, as you mentioned, the court represents a fairly small percentage of Americans, the court now has a very, has a massively lopsided conservative advantage on the court, six to three. Do Democrats have any means of changing the dynamic? Have they made any mistakes in the past that have enabled such a conservative court to take form over the decades? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first big mistake that Democrats made is they got rid of the, the filibuster for judicial nominees, which makes it very easy to confirm conservative justices very quickly and very easily. You don't have to get 60 votes, you just have to get 50. Now, it, that makes it also harder if, if you had the filibuster, it makes it harder to confirm liberal judges too, which is why they got rid of it. But I think what they failed to understand um, at the time when they did this is how much easier it's going to make it for the other side to do this thing as well. Um, and then it, part of it was just bad luck, of course. You can't help when Supreme Court judges retire or die, which was what happened. Um, and you can't help that Mitch McConnell was the majority leader and confirmed your picks, um, as happened with um, when Justice Scalia passed away. Um, now, what Democrats could do going forward, I think not a lot. Americans are not really behind the idea of court packing, which I think is why Biden has refused to support it. Um, they may not, Americans might not like what the court is doing, but they don't really want us tampering with the way the court works either, which is an interesting statistic, but this is at least what the polls show. And so what is it Democrats could do? I, I think not a lot. I mean, you just have to wait it out and wait for the conservative judges to retire, which is, I mean, Clarence Thomas is quite elderly. Um, Alito is not young, nor is Roberts. I mean, it, it, it is it's just a matter of a waiting game. 
Um, and they can also start to do what the conservatives did start beginning in the 70s, which is to create a strong liberal legal network. I mean, the conservatives have this huge network of conservative judges. I mean, what has happened in these last couple of weeks is the culmination of decades of, of conservative infrastructure being built for this exact purpose. They played the long game, and I don't think Democrats have been playing um, as good a long game when it comes to the judiciary. This is more of a, a little bit of a follow-up to what you mentioned earlier, but you mentioned you were speaking about what Democrats could do going further. Uh, many people have proposed term limits, um, commissions to choose Supreme Court justices, nonpartisan commissions. Do you support any particular reforms that could help prevent such a lopsided majority from happening again? Uh, personally, no. I, I mean, I think we may not like what the court is doing, but I think in some ways that this is how the court is supposed to behave. I mean, it's a, it's a conservative court, and that's unfortunate, maybe, but we've also had liberal courts, and for many people, that was unfortunate. Um, and, you know, the court seems very political, and that's because it is political, it, it, and it has always been a political institution. The idea of some unbiased court, I don't think, has ever really existed. I mean, the judges are used to usually be politicians. In fact, it's less political than it used to be. Now they're usually legal scholars and former judges. And they're picked by a politician, the president, and confirmed by politicians, the Senate. Now, maybe there's things we could do, and I, I maybe would be open to proposals that would make it a completely unpolitical institution, like, like a commission um, that recommends these judges. But then who's on the commission and who, how do we go from there? And so then the politics comes right back in it. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily a way to fix this. And it, it, of course you could expand the court, but then you just have fights. Um, the court will just keep growing and it's, it'll be like the, the Senate and Star Wars and you'll have thousands of justices because every president expands the court so they can appoint more. Or, or um, you could have term limits. And I think the problem with term limits is then you have judges trying to accomplish an agenda before they go. And then I also think you have the regularity of Supreme Court appointments will become something like elections. And I think the one virtue the Supreme Court has is its appointments are kind of irregular. You can't predict them, you can't ramp up for them, you can't start campaigning for them. And that is one sort of nice apolitical part of the entire process. And I, I would hate to see that go, where we start waiting for the, the, the terms to end so that we can gun for our people to get the job. And just to take through what the Supreme Court has done recently, as of this recording, the Supreme Court issued ruling a ruling limiting the EPA's ability to regulate polluting plants, and in the future could be making decisive rulings overturning presidents about contraception, gay marriage, as well as allowing state legislatures to possibly ignore state court, ruling, state court rulings on election matters. So why do you think the Supreme Court has been overturning all of this precedent recently? And why take shots to separation of powers and federalism at play between these branches of federal and state government? I mean, I think part of the reason that the court's been taking shots at these is that the court is made up of people with a certain legal philosophy. And a lot of these rulings were not made um, based on that legal philosophy and that understanding of the constitution. So, and, and then I think then what, what liberals should be trying to do when these cases come before the court, as I think they probably will, is think of, well, how can I come up with an originalist explanation for why same-sex marriage should be legal at the national level or why we can have contraceptives? And I think you can do it. Um, and I think that some of the judges, not all, of them, are open to that possibility, but it, it, it is going to be a tricky game 
for 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 uh, liberal solicitors generals and liberal lawyers. And then the, the, the second reason I think the court has done this, and I can't say which justices are like this or which are not, but I, I think a lot of them feel that the, in, in a more political way that the country has went in a very wrong direction and that the liberal judges were the ones who did it and they, they need to be the ones to undo it. And so for some of them, I think it really is, it's a legal thing. And for some of them, I think it's a more political thing. Um, I hate to speculate on, on which ones are which because I, I don't know what's going on in the minds of judges, obviously. But that, that does seem, I think, to be the impression I get from reading the rulings and the concurring opinion. And like you mentioned, you know, ideology plays a big role. So would you argue that a lot of these rulings, especially on Roe v. Wade on abortion, a lot of it, a lot of the reasoning one could argue is based in religious and moral principles. And, you know, which, you know, kind of model the separation between church and state, right? Because the United States is officially a secular nation. So would you argue that this sets precedent for really blurring the line between church and state and threatening the United States's, you know, stance as being a secular nation? I think not not really, not, not based on the, the languages of the rulings, because the languages seem to intimate the court didn't make a ban on abortion at the national level. Um, they turned it over to the states. They didn't mandate that there be um, prayer allowed at certain events in schools, but they said it was up to the schools. So in some ways, um, it's just a different view, I think, of separation of church and state that they're offering, which is that these sorts of decisions belong at the local level, and how separated you should be should, should be a local issue. It shouldn't be a national issue. And I don't think that's quite the same thing as eroding separation of church and state. I just think it's a different understanding of where those questions should be answered. Um, and the court seems to think in, in, in an interesting way that these questions shouldn't be answered by the judges. Um, they should be answered by, by the politicians or by um, school districts and that kind of thing. And so sometimes the court is actually... Um, abdicating some of its power over these things, I think, especially at this stance as precedent. So you're basically saying that these these justices are not actually going incredibly outside the bounds of what we've considered to be precedent or what we consider to be, you know, standard or at least somewhat conservative thought. they've They've actually acted within those bounds, just within different modes of doing it, not necessarily saying the precedent of contraception, for instance, you know, that's been for decades, but that can still stay. That can still stay in part in some states as long as as long as states have the choice to do it within a conservative boundary. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not necessarily, I mean, so obviously there's precedence on these cases. And I think to a conservative sensibility, which is always sort of dubious of change, you know, maybe it isn't very conservative to overturn precedent. But I think on, on a pure, but I think it's almost, it's, bad to think of judges as conservative or as liberal. They have legal philosophies. And I think within the bounds of an originalist legal philosophy, this actually makes a lot of sense. They're trying to get back to what they think is the original meaning of the Constitution. And they may not even like this, some of them. I suspect some of them don't. Um, But this is, I think, what they actually think that the Constitution demands they do. And I don't think... for most of them, that it's this idea that we're going to erode separation of church and state. I think it's this idea that we're going to get a little closer to the original meaning. And the original meaning says, this should be up to the states, this should be up to the localities. And that's a bit of, that's always been a somewhat controversial standpoint, though, throughout American history, to be fair, 
So it's not as though they're coming at this, this sort of unbiased um, spectators. I mean, originalism is taking a stance on what the Constitution says, and I think there's a lot of room to reasonably disagree with that. Um, but but that, I think that is what they're trying to do. I don't think they're attempting to sort of import the religious values or anything like that. This is what originalism is always, the position it's always taken on these issues. In some ways, it's not surprising that they did this, aside from the fact that I thought personally they might be a little more prudent about sort of implementing what we all sort of, I think, knew or what I most of us, I think, thought originalism was all about. So, Tyler, I know we've thrown a lot of questions at you, but I was just, I mean, we were just curious if you had any final thoughts that maybe we didn't cover in any of our questions regarding these two topics of the January 6th hearings or the Supreme Court. I think uh, one thing that not just these two topics, but the the last four or eight eight years have reminded us is that democracy is difficult. Um, I think after the Cold War, we kind of had this feeling in America and in the world that things were going to go well. From here on out, it would be more freedom and more rights, and it would be an easy uh, march forward into history. And I think the last four or eight years have shown us that that isn't the case, that politics is difficult, that democracy is a difficult regime to sustain, and that progress is not inevitable. Things can, in fact, actually get much worse. Uh, and you always have to be prepared for that. And I think, it, and so in some ways, I think that's everything that's happening, could be, especially with January 6th, I, I find particularly alarming, um, is, is quite bad. But um, in other words, I think it's hard, if we learn the lesson here, I think it could be good for us. I think we'll learn, we'll be on the watch for things like this more in the future. We won't take for granted that the world's becoming better. And we'll remember that we have to fight for a better world every day. And I think that's something you always have to keep in mind. Um, in the political realm. Tyler, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure to have you. Um, Thank you for answering our questions. Thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us and we hope to see you next time.